Alright, so this is the fourth in our talk series on knowing right from wrong, and our other topics have all been kind of general. Um, and we're zooming in tonight on something particular, on marriage and sex. And actually tonight's is going to be the shortest of the talks, because I'm trying to split discussing marriage from contraception. I've kept a lot for next week. Um, but I wanted, in a sense, to talk about the, what the purpose of the whole thing is in the mind of God. Um, and obviously, in thinking about this, we need to be thinking as Christians, thinking as people that believe there is a creator who has put a purpose in things, including a purpose in our bodies, a purpose in sex, a purpose in marriage. Interestingly, having said that, um, one of the theologians I follow, a lady called Janet Smith, she argues that everything we as Christians believe in terms of there being a purpose in the body and how the body works and how the body works from one person to another, actually the theory of evolution backs as well. Because evolution says that our bodies are as they are to have a purpose, that each animal has a purpose according to its niche in the environment. And our bodies, and how they affect us as persons, um, what we can see in the patterns from reason as, and as Christians, actually the theory of evolution points to as well. And that there's a purpose in how we are. Okay, so this opening slide here, um, I've said what photos. So if you're going to have anything about sex, um, rather limited in what photographs I can put up on the screen. Um, so this is as explicit as it's going to get. <laughs> so just holding hands. Um, all right. So what I want to explain, and I'm going to guess most of you have heard this at least in part before, is what Pope John Paul II called the theology of the body. And he, um, you know, he was our Pope for 28 years, and he was an original thinker in his own right, in many of the things he wrote about love and married love and sex. Um, you know, this is a, a particular um, focus of his as a theologian long before he became Pope. And he articulated the ancient teachings of the Church using this concept of what he called the language of the body. So what do we mean by that? Well, let's start with a <laughs> what we call body language. So you can look at that girl, and she is telling you something with her body, even though her mouth is pursed tightly shut. Yes? Um, then our body speaks. Um, this is what we mean when we talk about body language. Well, there was a particular image in the Gospels that John Paul II used to focus on, uh, and this was when Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. So these are just three different images from art. Um, betrayed with a kiss. That um, this is a horrible thing to do. That the kiss says one thing, but betrayal is the very opposite. 
So this is the point, that Judas's body was saying one thing, but the reality was something else. And so, in thinking about sex and marriage, how we behave with our body should actually be saying what we're actually doing. That the, what the body is saying and the reality of what we are in a relationship with somebody, these two things should match up. So, the, the language of the body. So, put here four different images. Um, a handshake, a hug, a kiss, or a slap across the face. Now, each of those varies a little, one culture to another, um, but they only vary to a limited amount. So, if you go to Italy or Malta, people will <laughs> hug you very freely. Um, and, and a hug, in a sense, will mean less than it would in this country. In this country, a hug implies a much greater degree of intimacy than it would in Italy or Malta. Um, but in neither country does a hug imply hostility. In neither country does a hug imply, I don't like you. So even though you might use these more or less freely in different cultures, their meaning is the same. Um, and there isn't any culture where a slap across the face um, means, hello, nice to see you. Um, so our body has built into it um, meanings, things it says, even before I decide how to use it. And although, I mean, to, to take that example, the slap across the face, I might have a particular <coughs> friend, and we have a thing we do whenever we meet, and we always slap each other across the face. Um, well, you could do that, but you'd be doing it with a kind of a sense of irony, that it was the reverse of what this obviously normally means. So the point is, what we are as humans, our body means something. What it says means something. Okay, the um, come on in, come on in. Um, we, sorry. Are we doing that? Ah, yes. Okay. I said there'd be no jokes about Italians tonight. <laughs> 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 go back and just say here what we were talking about. We're talking about the language of the body. Um, so the notion that the body speaks things. Um, so a handshake, a hug, a kiss, or a slap across the face, these all communicate something. That my body says something. It has an inbuilt meaning. Um, and as I was saying that an Italian will hug you much more freely than an Englishman will, but in both cultures it means something nice, it doesn't mean something unpleasant. Um, so, degrees of intimacy is kind of the next point I want to make. So the body means something, but these things I've listed here are each intimate, but they are degrees of intimacy. A hug means more than a handshake. 
holding hands more than a hug. A kiss means more than either. And what we call the marital act, sexual intercourse, is more intimate than any of the others. And there's nothing you can do with your body, with another person, that is more intimate than the marital act. So that there is a, a progression in the meanings of our bodily actions, and this is the high point of intimacy. Well, why does this matter? Well, as Christians we would point out that we have a body and a soul. Um, and what we do with our body actually affects our soul. So I've said here, it expresses, it realises, it fosters. So, when you hold hands with somebody, on one level that expresses intimacy. But actually, when you do that with your body, it doesn't just express what was already there, but it kind of makes it real. And it fosters it. It kind of increases it, or at least has a tendency to increase it. So what we do with our body matters because of these three things. It expresses something, and we don't want to express a lie, we want to express the truth. It makes it real, and it fosters it. Now what that means is the action of sex that has the greatest possible bodily union, it's just natural that that should only belong with the greatest possible personal union. So if you have shared your body with 40 people before you get married, well, you have nothing more that will be more intimate to share with the person you then marry. You've lost the ability to have something more intimate to give your spouse, because you've given that most intimate gesture to lots of other people. And that's why it matters. So you want to keep this greatest possible bodily union for the greatest possible personal. Okay, let's think about marriage now. So you have a, an image of a couple getting married. Or when they get married in church, as we have an image there, they say their vows. Just want to focus, what are the vows they're saying? What do they articulate? So, you make three declarations before you get married, before you actually make the vows, um, about it being lifelong, faithful and open to children. And all of these are just naturally what flows out of what I was saying before about this intimacy being the most intimate. Um, so, one of the things you say, um, I've taken a couple of quotes actually from the Anglican ritual for marriage because it actually expresses it a little more beautifully. Um, about, you might not know, the, the new translation of the marriage rites 
comes into effect next year, so we're going to have slightly new words for the marriage right as well. But in the ritual it says, forsaking all others. So there's something exclusive that you're going to, in marriage, be with this one person in a way that you aren't with anybody else. It is exclusive. So this greatest possible union, which on one level is bodily, well that greatest possible bodily union is for this one person. And it can't be the greatest union with 12 people. It's, it's, it loses that specialness. So one of the things the vows say is that it is exclusive. It also says lifelong. Uh, so we say, till death do us part, in the vows. Um, and again, that goes along with the notion of it being the greatest possible union. That a union you have with a friend that you have for a few months while you're travelling somewhere, or the union you have with a friend through your school years, when you're six years together in a school, well, that's a real friendship, but in terms of thinking greatest degrees of union, the greatest possible union is lifelong, till death do us part. The Anglican ritual also says this, with my body I thee worship. Um, actually, the word worship in modern English we think of as just for God, but in ancient English it would have a slightly broader meaning, um, so that you are giving honour um, to your spouse by giving them everything. And what kind of gestures can you give to your spouse? Well, there is no greater gesture than what's given in the body in that special way to your spouse. There's no other greater way you can express that sexual union. Right, moving on now. Think about having a child. Um, what does that do to the union? What does that say about the union? How does that relate to the union? Well, a couple have a child together. It's not just that one of them has a child, it's something you can only do with another person. Even these days with test tubes, another person is involved, even if it's very remotely. Um, the image I'm trying to convey here, these five images of a, a boy growing up, is that it's not something that happens for a minute and it's done. It's a lifelong thing. So it's something you do together, but you don't just do for a day, or do for a week, or even a year, or two years, or ten years, or fifteen years. Um, to raise a child is a long project that you are engaging in together. So that it kind of automatically belongs to a union two people that is lifelong, that is committed, that is exclusive, that has this specialness about it, 
if we need a place where trials can be raised over that length of time, it just has a natural belonging to this union called marriage. So, commitment, something long-term, something that bonds two people together. And I want to emphasize that point. Um, John Paul II used to talk about this in terms of what marriage is about and what a child brings to a marriage. That when you have a child, you have a child together, but that's something that then the two of you have to be involved with for a long time. And even when a couple are arguing about what to do with the child and how to raise the child and what the child needs, it's actually something that the two of them need to be involved in. And tragically, if we think in our modern context, when couples divorce, actually one of the things that keeps a couple together, even after they've divorced, is their ongoing relationship with the child that they have. That having a child bonds you to the other person you've had a child with, even when you no longer want to be bound. That there's something that holds you together, is having a child. And obviously in thinking of divorce, I'm thinking of uh, an unhappy outcome. But actually the natural tendency is that you just acquire another, a deeper common life together by your raising of the child, this common project that you're both involved in. I said there. Um, I said having a child together it needs a special kind of union. It needs the greatest possible union. So that's what I was saying <coughs> earlier. It needs marriage. That um, there isn't any greater union than marriage. The raising of children is essential for the future of any society. If a society is going to have a future, so the place even at that level to do that raising of a child is in that intimate union that is marriage. But coming back to the point I made before, marriage, and this was John Paul II's point, is unitive through being procreative. So marriage has this nature, it's an intimate union, it's a bodily union, a bodily union that has, of its very nature, a tendency in the acts proper to it, a tendency to create new life. And in that creating of new life, the new life bonds the couple together. So, it's not that marriage is about the union of the couple, and it's also about producing children, and these are two kind of conflicting realities. But actually, the two are inherently related to each other. So John Paul II, this is his faith. Unitive through procreative. So it's, it's about creating children, but that creating of children makes marriage different to every other union. Makes it need to be permanent, need to be committed, need to be lifelong.
And so when you make a um, promise um, during your marriage, you are, um, this is in the Catholic ritual, are you ready to accept children lovingly from God and bring them up according to the law of Christ and his church? So if you're not willing to accept children, then you're not really willing to enter into marriage. You want a kind of union, but a union that isn't really the fullness of what marriage is about. Because your bodies are looking to you if you are coming together. Just as a slight aside, um, to bring them up according to the law of Christ and his church, in the grander scheme, um, God, the creator, he wants not just new physical children in the world, but new spiritual children. Children that will relate to him as their loving father. And so he wants there to be a place where children are raised, learn about him, are taught about him, learn to relate to him. And this is the role of the parents. They are the first educators of children. We say in Catholic Church, the first and the best educators of children. But not just first and best educators of children in how to have good table manners, um, but in terms of how to pray, how to know God, how to relate to Him. This is what marriage should be about. Okay, there we are. Okay, so. Back to the three declarations. Lifelong, faithful, and open to children. That it all just naturally flows out of um, what marriage is about, what's different in this union to other unions. Um, so let me sum that all up. Um, talk about the language of the body. That our body means something, our body says something says something even before we choose what meaning it will have. So, my handshake, it means a gesture of intimacy, but not too much intimacy, and so forth. A kiss, more intimacy still. Um, and the sexual union is the greatest possible bodily union that goes with the greatest spiritual personal union. And in that greatest personal union, has a natural tendency to produce new children um, and that producing of new children in itself has a dynamic that tends to bond the couple together for life. Alright, so that's actually the shortest of the talks I'm doing in this series, but um, 